Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. Today we talked to Dr. Cole Thompson of the USGA about how golf courses are beneficial to the environment and could be even more so. But first, this episode is brought to you by Beedratty. Beedratty is the official apparel of the Fried Egg, and there's something you might not know about their products. It's that they love using sustainable, natural fibers, like their organic Peruvian Pima cotton and alpaca yarns. You can find these fabrics in everything from their sweaters to their famously soft polos and all the way down to their organic Peruvian Pima cotton Richard Boxers. Not only are many of Beedratty's fabrics sustainably sourced and grown without the use of harmful pesticides, but they're also ethically harvested and produced. So the result is a confusingly comfortable and durable product that you can feel good about buying and wearing. Shop the entire Beedratty line at Beedratty.com and receive 25% off with our exclusive discount code TFE25. That's Beedratty.com, TFE25. So there's this perception out there that golf courses are not good for the environment, that they use too many chemicals, too much energy, and just in general, that they're not ecologically beneficial or sustainable. And as a golfer, I've always thought that this perception was overly simplistic. I look at golf courses and often what I see is not a blight on the environment, but instead wonderful, vital green space that's that's worth protecting. The problem is I've never really had specific evidence or research to point to and say, see, golf actually can be a big contributor to a healthy ecosystem. So I figured since Earth Day is coming up this Thursday, it's Earth Week, I suppose, it was time to bring on someone who really knows this subject. And few people know more about it than Cole Thompson. Cole got his bachelor's, master's, and PhD from Kansas State University, and he's worked as a professor at the University of Nebraska and Cal Poly. These days, he helps direct the USGA Turfgrass and Environmental Research Program, which provides funding for all kinds of different projects, including ones that have to do with the relationship between golf courses and the environment. In this episode, we dig into a couple of those studies and just generally talk about how to understand what golf courses bring to an ecosystem and how they might be able to bring more. All right, here's Cole Thompson. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So we talked to a lot of people on this podcast with easily explainable jobs, golf course architect, professional golfer. People might not be familiar with your particular profession, your particular job at the USGA. So could you tell me a little bit about that and um, and what your department is doing there? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, you're exactly right. It's not an easy thing to describe. Uh, I, I you should you should hear some of the conversations I have with people I meet. I it, it depends on how interested they are, how much detail I give. <laughs> sort of yeah, very vague. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe we eventually winnow it down. Um, but so the green section itself has been around um, for a hundred years as part of the USGA and um, was founded 
are established initially to conduct research to help golf courses uh, manage turf more sustainably, but but still provide the playing conditions that they want to provide. And so that was the you know the genesis of the green section. And over the years, it has evolved and, and changed in, in various ways. Mid, around the mid-century, the the uh, course consulting service was founded, and and there was a, a focus on not just conducting research, but getting it out to the masses. So that was a kind of a big turning point. Uh, and then Later on in the, in the 80s, we started the, the, the internal kind of focused research that being conducted by people in the USJ started to expand. And really that was in the 60s and 70s, the USJ started funding universities a lot more to do research with, with scientists at specific universities. And, and then that has uh, in, increased um, even more with the advent of the, the program that I now manage, the Turf Grass and Environmental Research Program that was essentially established in, in 1983. And it's a competitive uh, grant program, a competitive RFP essentially, where we, we have a set of research priorities and we ask university scientists to propose you know, ways that they think they can make progress against those priorities. And then with an advisory panel of, of scientists, I, you know, I review and select uh, which ones of those we think we should go after or support. And then we, we kind of work with those scientists for the next few years to uh, get reports on their projects and, and eventually publish it in, in the peer-reviewed literature, which is uh, an important record and an important review of the science to make sure that the, the, the scientists who conducted the work, that their peers uh, approve it. And, and that's an important step that we, that we uh, think is very important. And so uh, anyway, that's the, that's the research program, but the, the, and how it runs today, the course consulting service is still very much around. At, at some point, the, um, the uh, green section record uh, w was established and it's gone by various names. It's a, it's a digital magazine that the USGA circulates. Uh, anyone can subscribe to, it's freely available. So that is still published twice a month. Uh, and then, and then recently we, we have a, uh, a tools development team where, where there are some folks actually working on developing uh, digital tools uh, for that kind of organize a lot of the data that, that um, research and science have produced over the years. So that, that's kind of a, a high level overview of the green section um, and, and all of our parallel teams and, and, and missions that, that are working towards that, that common goal of optimizing uh, resource use and playing conditions. Yeah, the USGA Green Section is, is doing a, a ton of really interesting work right now. And one of the programs, the, the one that we're sort of going to focus on today, is the uh, the Turf Grass and Environmental Research Program, which you referred to earlier, where you're you know giving grants to academic institutions, essentially, to, to conduct research uh, that's relevant to golf course management, golf course maintenance. So, you know, there, there are many different kinds of turf grass research that you might fund, right? There, there are many different right. kind of purposes and, uh, and objectives that this kind of research might have. What, what kind of research or what kinds of research is the USGA particularly interested in funding right now? What, what are kind of the imperatives? Yeah, so we are our three kind of broad um, initiatives are to, you know, sustainable golf management and playing conditions, um, protecting and conserving water resources and uh, identifying and, and developing novel plant materials, which you can think of as plant breeding. And so that, those are pretty three pretty wide nets and, and people, people fit into them in a lot of different ways with their research foci. And, 
so it, it essentially it runs the gamut of the projects that we support from very basic science you know genetics and breeding uh, trying to understand uh, how how plants grow and, and why grasses respond to different stresses the way they do all the way to very applied research where there's a, a very problematic weed or disease or insect uh, that somebody needs to know how to control and you know we want to develop a very specific set of strategies just to control that various pests so uh, and everything in between irrigation management fertilizer scheduling and management um, and cultivation managing the soil profile which confers a lot of the traits uh, that we appreciate of golf course turf so a specific topic that i wanted to uh, dig into with you and, and something that's that's very widely discussed is how golf courses might bring more benefits to the environment than people know and there are a couple of projects that the usga is helping to fund right now or, or has helped fund recently that are looking into some of those benefits and, and really trying to understand them because it is a, a complex topic and one that people make that kind of these declarations about that are not necessarily supported by by research or reason one of those projects is called the natural capital project uh could you tell me about that yeah absolutely um so the natural capital project started in in 2017 and it's a it's a collaboration with scientists at the university of minnesota and now michigan state university uh, but the, the the natural the natural capital project itself is a conglomerate of different research institutions and nonprofits that are trying to define the well basically what's in their name the the, the natural capital that landscapes provide and 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 how we can can leverage that and measure that and so the, this group of of scientists had an interest in trying to apply that to golfscapes and trying to understand better how golf courses fit into communities and what benefits they provide especially in urban communities and they essentially were they developed a methodology where they can they can assess and and model the basically the services and disservices a golf course provides right because it, it can go both ways but they uh, were, were able to quantify you know this this set of benefits at the start at the starting phase just the uh golf courses in the metropolitan area of minneapolis and st paul mm -hmm. and basically get an average response for what a golf course how it how, what benefits it provides or doesn't provide to that community and when they're using these models they're basically using data published from from previous research that shows you know like what a golf course might provide from a, 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 an urban heat island mitigation standpoint a temperature mitigation standpoint from a, a biodiversity standpoint uh, or or how many nutrients are or are not you know leached from the property or run off from the property into into the watershed or near nearby streams in the watershed and so they, they're able to use all of that data that has been collected over many years and kind of feed it into the background of of land use um, characterizations golf courses or something else and then how it's managed and it's basically it, it comes down to it's a really powerful communication tool because it's a way to organize all of that research and say you know based on these parameters golf courses provide x compared to some other land use and that's how they approached it because you know golf courses are under a lot of pressure they're typically set on very valuable lands or they're you know unfortunately they might be failing especially a municipal course and a city might be trying to decide what what to do with that golf course and mm -hmm. and very often if a if a golf course is replaced it becomes a a park uh, or or a residential landscape um, or even an industrial park and so and then the, the most important comparison I would argue to a golf course is the background natural landscape, because we can only hope to be as good as the background landscape that that has to be the benchmark. And so they basically compared golf courses to all these other land uses 
uh, for, again, for a set of uh, services and disservices, and basically showed that the golf courses provide uh, very similar or better urban uh, heat island mitigation. So they, they cool uh, surrounding communities on par with parks and, and natural areas. Uh, they export a, a slightly more nutrients than those naturalized landscapes, but they export less nutrients than residential communities, right? So they're kind of, they, they provide an intermediate level of service, the researchers would say. And, and then uh, in terms of, of pollinator habitat, again, they're not quite as good as the natural landscapes, according to this research, but better than, than, than urban uh, residential landscapes. And so, so it's, it's kind of just this way for everybody to wrap their head around, you know, how, how a golf course really does plug into a community and what it actually provides rather than, rather than guessing. Right. Because when you're making these sort of urban planning decisions, typically in the past, people have based those decisions more on, on, on kind of sometimes sloppy perceptions about the environmental, the relative environmental benefits of golf courses. And, and this study gets, gets quite a bit more specific. You, you mentioned urban cooling that the golf courses provide, you know, how do we put this? You, you mentioned the, the urban heat Island, essentially cities, cities are hot, <laughs> right? right. Uh, because they're, you know, they don't have this kind of plant life and, and natural landscape. And so, you know, they generate quite a bit of heat and golf courses help to lessen that impact a little bit. Um, so could you talk about what, what's the importance of that? How can we portray that to the public as, as something that is an important ecosystem service to use the, the language of the project that, golf courses provide yeah so you know and, and, and i mean you're exactly right the, the the cities because it's a built environment the concrete and asphalt all of those materials they, they just retain heat more than plant material does right and so they heat up during the day and then they don't cool down at night and so it's kind of a two-fold problem where wherever you have an actively growing plant, water is, water is always flowing through that plant and then it evaporates off the leaf surfaces and, and that's a cooling process. It's just like sweat evaporating from your skin. And so that's kind of the, I guess, the thermodynamics of, of, how, of how it works, right? And, and why that green space is actually cooler than the city. But the important thing to emphasize is that the, the benefit of that cooling goes beyond the boundaries of the golf course. I don't remember the exact distance away from the golf course that they have found it provides, but, but it does provide that service to, the, to its periphery, right, to, to a certain distance away from the core of the golf course. Um, and, and I mean, this can translate to, to a couple of important um, deliverables. I mean, one is just lower, lower energy use, right? If, it's, if, uh, if, if you have a cooler ambient environment, it might require less, less air conditioning. Um, and so people are using less energy potentially. Um, and then there's also, I mean, especially with at, some at-risk populations, older people or people that have other um, health challenges, I mean, to, to go to like the really far extreme, deaths from, from excessive heat, you know, are, are an issue. And so there, there's actually a, a human health component there too. And not saying that golf courses, saving them in the city are going to save X many lives in a year, but, mm -hmm. but, but there, there can be far-reaching implications to, to this type of effect. So, so one of the things that people need to do when they consider the importance of golf courses to urban environments is, is to compare them to other land uses. You know, I think we're, we're well aware that, you know, the, the cooling services provided by a golf course, although it is surprising to me that they're on a level more or less with, with natural areas and, and parks, that, that's a cool finding of the project that might be somewhat unexpected. We know that golf courses as green spaces are, are more beneficial to the environment than an industrial park. I think people are aware of that. 
I, I think perhaps the more important comparison will be with those natural areas, as you said earlier, and with parks, because those are the, you know, for people who are sort of environmentally minded, those are the uses of golf course land that are most often suggested. So if someone's going to go about comparing the environmental benefits of a golf course to, say, a park, let's just start with a city park. How would they go about that? How, how do you think, what would be the best way to start thinking that through? It, you know, it's a good question. And, and, and the first, I think the first thing that, especially with armed with this study, um, the first thing that people will look at specific to Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I should mention that they're also uh, undergoing the, the same analysis in six other cities. And so we are getting some other geographies worked into this. And, and there are important geographical differences in, in how landscapes or how golf courses perform to the background natural landscape. You know, think of a, a desert background natural landscape versus that in Minnesota. So there are differences. But, but if we just focus for your question on Minnesota and think about what a, what a natural or you wanted to look at a park versus a golf course. So if we just if we just look at a park, you know, armed with this study, a reader can say, well, it's 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 better or, or at least similar in terms of cooling a golf course is. But the golf course exports more nitrogen and phosphorus and doesn't provide quite as good of pollinator habitat because that was the proxy that the researchers used for biodiversity in their study. And so at face value, you might look at that and say, well, you know, then the, the golf course does not have as much value as the park. Um, but if you if you look a little bit deeper, you know, th there's a couple reasons why those results happen. And, and one is management. I mean, parks are not managed to the level that golf courses are less fertilizer is applied in a year. And so that's essentially why you get a little less runoff or export of nutrients throughout a year. But all of the research that supports this this natural capital modeling effort um, shows for the most part that uh, nutrients, when applied with proper best management practices on golf courses, are really retained to the golf course. It's not very common when applied properly that a nutrient or even a pesticide would leave the golf course and contaminate a water. So we, even so, even though we see that from the study, we know from the years of research that that's really not a, a very large risk. And, and again, we can explain it with, with differences in management and, and why, the, the, why the model spit that out, right? The other thing to consider is, you know, managing managing that park isn't necessarily free either, right? And so, so if this if this is a municipal golf course, right, we should look at the the golf course and kind of kind of flip the script a little bit and think, well, you know, we're going to invest in a green space, right? Um, people don't expect parks to make money hand over fist, right? That's just an investment in the community. And at the at the municipal golf level, if we looked at a golf course the same way. You know, we're, we're, we're investing in that green space for the community. And if and if the, the city makes a little money off the golf course, all the better. Well, well, the last point you make is is one that's going to be very persuasive to the non-golfing public or, or has potential to be persuasive to that public. Because, you know, when when cities talk about investing in golf courses, the assumption that a lot of people have and, and quite reasonably so I, I i can imagine coming to this conclusion myself if i weren't a golfer that if you're spending money on the golf course you're not spending money on me you're not you're spending money on the golfers and, and people mm -hmm. have certain ideas about who golfers are that aren't always accurate but that's another subject but if you say that we are going to invest in this golf course to naturalize certain areas or to do things to make it more of a benefit to the environment then then I think people can see that those benefits will come to them. 
That's a great point. I mean, there there are like, and you you meant you brought up a very good point. The naturalized areas on these golf courses provide a, a very wide-reaching benefit to humanity, and 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 that's some messaging that that potentially I think could help in that situation. Right now, so this is an exciting area of study to me. You know, arming urban planners with with some specific ideas and and real research about the environmental impact of golf courses in cities. Where do you think this research goes next? You know, the the project seems to be very much in its early stages. Its initial findings are, are quite impressive, but focused on the Twin Cities area. You mentioned that it's going to expand out. Um, in addition to going out to these different areas, uh, you know, where else do you think this project is going to go in the future and, and what could it discover? Yeah, so so right now they are the the same work that happened in the Twin Cities is occurring in uh see I'll try to work my way from east to west coast and not forget any but it's happening in in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and in Atlanta, Georgia, Detroit, Dallas, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona and San Francisco, California. Um so the idea is that those are eco-regionally specific and that they could because of they were they were selected strategically because you could potentially extrapolate the results from each of those locations to a little broader region and start to paint a bigger picture a more comprehensive picture for the united states um so so that's kind of the current step that we're working on and they're also working on a few more a few more models that they're incorporating in this this suite of services that they're quantifying um one is a stormwater retention that's another potential benefit for golf courses as well as carbon sequestration you know, just by the virtue of growing and sucking carbon dioxide out of the air, grasses sequester that in the soil. Um, and so so that's another benefit. And then they're even looking at some things um, around around what golf courses provide in terms of home values, right, and some of these economic drivers. Uh, and so they're they're kind of organizing, you know, these other cities and, and other modeling initiatives. And, and then they're also, you know, looking for other opportunities to, to continue the work where other cities might be interested in, in having the analysis done specific to their city. And so there are those types of opportunities as well. Um, also talking with the researchers, you know, I know they're they're interested in um, in some of these kind of mixed mixed use green space uh, scenario analyses. Like it, you know, for, at this point, it's been if it's not a golf course, you know, what would it be? It's been if not golf, then what? But I think that you know, I think we all recognize that there's potential to to shift our thinking there a little bit and start to look at you know more of a spectrum. Like th- there's obviously different ways that a golf course can exist, and and we're seeing that kind of take hold in the U.S. and it's probably already taken taken hold outside of the US and you know short courses um, and then what can you do with the rest of that space could some of that space be a park and some's a golf course could the periphery be hiking trails but then the core is still a golf course and and could you maintain all the ecosystem service benefits by doing that and so those are some of the some of the interesting frontiers for the research I think I wanted to pick up on a on a really specific point um that was in there stormwater retention I'm not sure of the proper terminology here. I've I've often used the term stormwater runoff, but but something that I've seen at city golf courses or or that I know from, you know, talking to people about the history of these places is that if you see like a golf course in the middle of a city that has some waterways in it, waterways that used to have like not a lot of water when there wasn't as much development around the golf course and now they do have a lot of water because all of a sudden there are all these people and all this development around it and, and where is the where is the water going to go and not just storm water i suppose but water generated by the households and and you know whatever else sure. that that 
you know, is running into the golf course and filling up these channels a little bit more. Is that something that you've kind of seen? Is that something that people are looking into as a potential benefit, you know, essentially eating the sins of, of the development <laughs> around it? Like the golf courses are there to absorb the the effects of, of kind of, you know, burgeoning civilization around themselves. It's an interesting question. And, and I don't, I don't know of, of any um, validation of the exact question you're asking, like, mm -hmm. like, are these waterways, do they have higher, higher peak flows now because of, uh, you know, a more urbanized world around the golf course? I, I don't know of anything specific to that. I could see where it would be the case, though. I mean, you could see where it would, especially if it's designed where the stormwater from a community spills into the golf course, which then goes into their surface retention ponds. I mean, you, you could see where that could be the case. But uh, I guess the thing I was going to point out is that with the way that they're modeling stormwater retention, it's kind of like a hundred year flood event. So it's one of these big, big flood events. How much water could you retain and prevent uh, destructive flooding to to the nearby oh, okay. nearby structures? I see. And so and so that's that's been their focus uh, because you, you can imagine, just like you mentioned, if you replace a golf course with all this paved surface and buildings, not only is the water going to get deep right there, but it's going to get deep further out away from the golf course. And so that's that's the approach they're taking. Yeah, yeah. Where where is the water going to go? In other words, and I mean, it's just one of those little ways that that people would not think of normally about uh, how a golf course might be part of the ecosystem of a of a city. You know, so. Moving on to another project that the USGA is is helping to fund, Monarchs in the Rough. Tell me about it. Yeah, so this is this is an interesting project, and I think the first thing I'd say is the USGA has partnered with Autobahn International, who who runs Monarch in the Rough, which is a, it's an independent uh, nonprofit since the early '90s, and and Autobahn itself has a number of conservation programs, one of which is the Autobahn uh, Cooperative Sanctuary Program for Golf Courses, and they have a set of you know a set of recommendations and best practices that they provide to golf courses. Uh, and golf courses can actually get certified through that program if they're meeting all of these best plans. Um, they can receive a cooperative sanctuary certification, which we encourage golf courses to do. And I think it's an important, you know, kind of a, a environmental stewardship step that golf courses can take. And there's there's some there's somewhere in around a thousand golf courses in the U.S. that have that certification. More that are interacting with with the uh, program, but I think around a thousand are certified. And so. Monarchs in the Rough is kind of a, a natural extension of that partnership and of that mindset. It, you know, the thought is just that there are, oh my gosh, I mean, the, the total acreage of, of golf courses in the U.S. is actually relatively small compared to other land uses. If you've ever seen the maps that, that show like in the U.S. how, how many, what, what, what footprint golf courses take up compared to everything else, I mean, it's, it's really small. But they're, they're, in, they're in these cities, right? And so it provides opportunity to provide continuous habitat and, and basically enhance habitat continuity for all types of different species, especially when you consider that golf courses, you know, if it's 150 acres on average for an 18-hole golf course, not all of that is is managed golf course. You know, there's around 30 acres of fairways, five acres of tees, five acres of greens. And so that leaves you, you know, and then maybe 30 acres of rough. But but so that leaves you between 20 and 50 acres of area that is not in play, essentially. And so so those areas are really prime for naturalization, for, for planting, um, you know, eco-regionally appropriate plant materials. And just letting them kind of kind of be, and and so that was kind of the 
the thinking behind monarchs in the rough was let's re let's take one let, let's use those naturalized areas like we already encourage people to do but let's let's provide some support for a species that is in decline and there's estimates that the monarch butterfly populations are are 80 or 90 percent decline compared to, the, to what they used to be solely because of uh, a loss of habitat because of an increase in managed lands in the u.s uh, that you know they're solely relying on on a, a set of species of plants called milkweed and uh, without those, they don't they don't complete their life cycle. And monarchs migrate from from uh, central Mexico up to Canada every year. It's it's a it's an annual migration, and then they go back. They overwinter in Mexico, and so without that habitat, they don't complete their migration, and 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 fewer uh, there's fewer generations, and, and fewer make it back. And so that that was the whole idea behind the project was let's let's provide some habitat for that migration. And so it focused on the central U.S. initially on that that migration pathway, but you know other plant materials are planted besides just uh, milkweed. There are actually, you know, flowers planted as well that provide nectar for other pollinators. And so really it's a, you know, it's called monarchs in the rough because we want to, we want to raise awareness to the decline of, of monarch butterflies and, and enhance um, their ability to survive. But really it's an initiative that is continuing to just uh, encourage, you know, golf course decision makers to, to give some of that land for, for these types of services that can, that, that we can provide. Beyond the specific benefits to the monarch butterfly, what what other kinds of habitats could you see naturalized areas on golf courses providing? Yeah, so pollinators are just one example. And the, the USGA uh, in, oh man, it, it was probably after the Cooperative Sanctuary Program started, there was a series of kind of follow-up projects with, with Autobahn International and some other collaborators to do exactly that, to quantify different species on golf courses. I mean, it was called wildlife links. And there, and there were, you know, a number of different species. There's a lot of focus on birds. Um, and then there's, we've had also focus on bats, right? And we actually have a current project where we're looking at, at increasing, using something called bat boxes, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a birdhouse, essentially. It's a, it's a bat house. <laughs> Not a bat cave, mind you, but, 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 it, but it, it doesn't sound as appealing, perhaps. But 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 bats are actually great. If you actually look into right. bats, they're they're fantastic. Uh, even though they might creep people out a little bit. <laughs> well, you know what I always think is funny is people don't realize how many bats they probably see flying around in their communities at yeah. night when they think they're seeing birds flying around. For it's, sure. it's, it's likely in some locations that those are actually bats and they just don't even realize it. But there's been a, a very serious investment, you know, about $10 million over the years in all this environmental research and, and trying to understand exactly what's on a golf course. And, and I, I guess I can't list all the species that have been investigated to you, but the focus is is what the natural fauna is for that location, you know, and especially if anything's at risk, can we can we find it on the golf course and, and how much is the golf course uh, supporting that species? Yeah. And and these kinds of initiatives, I mean, when it comes to the monarch butterfly, it, it's, it's one species. It's important to do something for the monarch butterfly, but it is a particularly memorable one because they're, they're so beautiful. And, and so showing that, you know, golf courses don't have to be habitat disruptors right that that in fact the the idea that it's the golf course versus a particular kind of frog or the golf course versus a particular kind of snake is really overly simplistic golf courses can provide habitats for animals that are struggling to find a home elsewhere that that seems like a really like important message to get out there because so much of what people hear is is kind of the opposite yeah, I think that's well said. You know, it's kind of the stance of 
instead of instead of starting it at golf courses are bad and and this is why and 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 we need to protect this species it's more the stance of you know golf courses are in this location and we have we have this undisrupted land what what can we support with that land all right so i i'd like to run some uh common environmental criticisms of golf courses by you um and i'm not okay. necessarily asking you to disagree with these or or to defend golf or 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 anything like that i'm just curious how they hit you and how you might start a conversation based off of the the point that they're making you know sometimes the points are not very good sometimes they're actually quite valid i i I think so one one criticism of golf courses is that they use too much water um how would you respond to that criticism and and you know where would you go with that conversation yeah, so um, golf courses do do need water. I mean, that is that is uh, one of our main challenges. I think is is how to continue to get better at conserving water on golf courses, uh, especially when you have a an increasing population. I mean, and, and the need to produce food, the strain on our, on our potable water supply is it's not going to lessen. We're, we're, this is going to be a continuing challenge. And so that has been a, a very large focus of the research program over the years. And, and we have it, it's, it's, we pulled it out as one of our strategic initiatives from kind of sustainable golf management for that exact reason, because it's so important. And so um, that, that, would be, that would be my starting point is just acknowledging that, that yes, it is important. And we're also doing all we can to mitigate the effect that the golf courses have on the water supply and that, you know, kind of some of the, the things that people may or may not realize are, so there's, there's a number of like current initiatives or research projects that we've, that we've undertaken over the years. And kind of the foundation is, is plant improvement and plant selection and turf grass breeders at universities have been selecting plants for their drought tolerance for years. Uh, and, and it's kind of this continual gradual moving of the needle. It's not just like a big switch where all of a sudden we're saving all this water, but plant materials are, are slowly improving and, and becoming more drought tolerant. And then we like to, you know, encourage that those species that are drought tolerant and, and actually require fewer of other resources in many cases, that those are the cultivars and plant materials that people use on their golf courses. Uh, and then there's kind of the uh, angle of, of precision management, which is, you know, over the years, there's kind of been this change from field-based irrigation to to water budgeting, where you're actually using some of the science we and others have conducted to estimate how much water your golf course is going to need on any given day. And then you apply that amount instead of, instead of you know, a, a, a frequency, right? This this much irrigation or, or this many days per week. And so water budgeting has been a, a big improvement there. And then you know, we're seeing more increase in the use of soil moisture sensors. Uh, soil moisture is highly variable across the golf course, right? And so you really do need to monitor it in a, in a very, with high spatial resolution. And so that's kind of what, what this, the soil moisture uh, sensing approach has taken. And, and if, if people are on golf courses or, or work on golf courses, you know, superintendents and their crews know exactly what we're talking about. And if you've ever seen one of them walking around hand-watering greens, they have these soil moisture sensors where they're, they're basically gut checking their perception of, is this, is this spot dry or not? And they stick a meter in the ground and, and see yet this is or isn't dry and then decide to apply or not to apply a little bit more water. So I guess I would say, you know, kind of to sum up, yeah, it's an issue, but there's a, a whole host of things that we're doing to try to try to make it better and, and use as little water as possible. Do you think the introduction of native grasses 
that a, a smart tree management program that those are that those are important factors as well in in this topic. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I anything naturalized landscapes, right, where you can reduce the amount of highly maintained acreage on a golf course is going to save water, right? And mm -hmm. so that that's actually something we've seen over the years is that 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 is a strategy that has been very highly adopted by golf courses to kind of shrink their footprint. You know where they where they know golfers go, they can manage that area. Maybe even down to landing areas during a specific drought. We see that a lot in the West. But then to increase those naturalized lands, just to further reduce the strain on the water supply. And and you know something else that I I didn't mention is we we've long encouraged golf courses to try to get a hold of recycled water, mm. uh, because you know this is this is water coming from it's basically wastewater and it's been retreated and. Um, it's unsuitable for human consumption, right? And so it's a, it's a good use to use it on a golf course. And so that's another kind of breeding and management program to enhance a grasses or a, a golf course's ability to tolerate that saline irrigation water because it gets it gets it gets a high level of salinity from all the treatment. So that's a you know another big area of improvement. My, my understanding is that Torrey Pines, so upcoming venue of the U.S. Open, uses recycled water. Is that is that correct? You know, I, 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 I can neither confirm nor deny, but I would, <laughs> it would not surprise me one bit. There, there are many golf courses on the West Coast that are using recycled water. Yeah, sort of out of, out of necessity. And, and, you know, San Diego is, is a, an, an incredible test case for water use on golf courses because of the profound water difficulties that that community is having in general. And, and obviously the golf courses are part of that. And so they would stand to benefit tremendously from, from any advances in, in the science here. Um, so I, I mentioned tree management, and, and maybe this is a slightly separate topic, but my understanding, and I, I don't know if this is the accurate understanding, so you can correct me, but my understanding <laughs> okay. is that when you have a lot of trees with a lot of cultivated turf grass, that that uses a lot of water, that the, that the trees suck up a lot of water, and, and, and that that's a bad situation. On the other hand, having trees is beneficial in many ways to the surrounding environment. We all know the benefits that trees generally bring. And then there's the question of the architecture and the design of the golf course, right? And, and trees, you know, overgrowth of trees can be harmful to the playing characteristics of the golf course. So there are these, all these questions around trees, environmental golf course design questions. How does an individual golf course go about deciding what its approach to tree management is in trying to balance all of those considerations? Yeah, that's a that's a really complex question, and I think the <laughs> the, the place I would start is that, you know, we we could compare uh, if if the data is available the the actual water use rate of of that species of tree versus the grass that's growing under it, and and we could we could make some some comparisons and assumptions and, and argue about which is better uh, or which would use less water. But I think in that case, it 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 comes down to trees are um, are a big investment because. You know, especially big trees, the specimen trees that that, as you said, can can define a golf course, or uh, very importantly, maybe providing habitat for some wildlife, or just providing shade for somebody that they enjoy, right? And so, that doesn't happen overnight that a tree gets that long, that, that large, right? It takes years, and so I think we have to put it through that through that lens that that trees are are a big investment versus a a, gra a grass that you can more easily establish and turn over in a year if if something's not not working out well and and we see this you know when there's water restrictions in, in the west where you know communities are not not just in the west i mean it happens uh, in other places in the u.s too but you, you'll see you know um, kind of exceptions where 
somebody may not be watering a lawn or a large turf area, but they've got a hose snaked all the way across the lawn to water this large tree. Because if they don't water it, it'll die. And then that could be a big loss uh, from a from a mo money value uh, and also just from you know the, the services value that for whatever reason people are enjoying that tree. So I think that's the starting point is what is the purpose of the tree, right? And, and what's it what's it actually providing? And then how does it, or what, what decisions could actually be made to change that? That is a good start starting point. What is the purpose of the tree? Because then you can start to ask questions about, is it a native tree? Has it been there for hundreds of years? Is it in a good place on the golf course? Does, does it actually help the strategy of the hole or, or hurt the strategy of the hole? I, I think that this idea of trees bad versus trees good is, is, you know, hurting the discussion of trees on golf courses. It, it's pretty clear that they can bring substantial benefits while carrying you know, at the extreme end, some big risks as well, or some big uh, potential harms. Yeah, the, the, there's a big question, how safe is a tree, right? If you're in love with a tree for whatever reason, but uh, it's got some cracks in it and a big wind could dislodge some large limbs or worse, blow it over into a structure or person, you know, that's that's something that obviously has to be considered. And it probably, what we're, what we're probably doing, Garrett, is is uh, making a good argument for the fact that, and, and, and golf course managers do this, right, is is get a tree inventory with a, with a, with an arborist that knows all of these things and, and can tell you what the health and value is of your trees and, and help you, you know, develop a really good sustainable management plan for them. So another common criticism of golf courses um, as they interact with the environment uh, is that golf courses pollute the groundwater and the surrounding area with their use of pesticides and fertilizers. So how does the conversation go on that? Yeah, so this is this is something that with the big golf course construction boom in the in the eighties, um, this this became a real concern because there were really you know these unfounded claims of exactly what you've just described. You know, golf courses are polluting the environment with mass use of fertilizers and pesticides, and so that was really the in some ways the the reason for you know, a larger investment in the research program that, that we've been talking about today that I now manage. And there was even a, an increased a, a invested effort in environmental research in the 90s to start to really get at these types of questions. And over all, over all the years, you know, the, the decade or two of research, again, that's included in this uh, $10 million figure I, I fed you earlier, that basically what scientists at, at universities have, have found in, in different locations is that if you, we've defined a set of best management practices where if you, if you apply fertilizers and pesticides in the right way, at the right time of year, at the right rate, you know, when needed, water them in a little bit afterwards, don't apply them close to water, grow vegetation up near the water uh, so that you're you know, preventing the likelihood that they even get to the surface water and not before a big rainstorm. So you give them that, that chance to, to go through the profile or, or off into a surface water. If these types of best management practices are followed, all of this research has, has pretty clearly shown that it's unlikely, it's a pretty low risk that fertilizers and pesticides are going to move from a golf course into other water features in a watershed. And if they do, they're typically found at levels that are, you know, below what, what the EPA would consider acceptable. Mm -hmm. Kind of the, maybe the, the exception 
is uh, so so phosphorus has been. I mean, so nutrients are a concern because they can eutrophy waters, right? They can de decrease the quality of of waters, and it, and it's a real concern. The, phosphorus is the one that has been found to be more problematic in the turf research, but it's also a nutrient that we don't need to apply a lot of. There's there tends to be enough in most soils, and so that's what another good recommendation is to you know only apply that type that that nutrient, anything with phosphorus in it. Um, if your soil test indicates that you're low and very deficient and phosphorus and then you would just put out a little bit again at the right time of year to kind of get you where you need to be and so I think that's something that people probably don't realize is how much effort there's been to try to quantify uh, these types of concerns but also to just really improve the thought that goes into to managing turf to making sure that we as, as much as we can you know mitigate the risk of, of these non-point source pollution events. Right. So so I suppose the response to the criticism would be, one, the initial sort of panic about these problems might have been overblown. And and two, there have been advances in the science that have, uh, you know, enabled uh, golf course managers to be uh, responsible about their application of chemicals, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And again, that's another practice that some of our recent surveys that we we, we think are very widely adopted. You know, um, fifty yeah. percent around uh, around that number of golf courses that we we survey use these types of best management practices to do exactly this. Right. So this this last criticism is not so much a criticism as you know maybe an acknowledgement of an oncoming existential crisis for uh, uh, golf okay. as well as humanity, but but climate change. <laughs> Um, obviously is going to have a big impact on golf course maintenance. It might get harder for many golf courses in many parts of the U.S. specifically to maintain their, their current conditions. So what do you see as the industry's responses to uh, climate change? What are some of the kind of problems and potential solutions that are being worked through right now? Yeah, so, I mean, we can... We can look at this issue. Uh, we could talk about it for hours, uh, and we could we could look through it from a lot of, through a lot of different lenses. And I think probably the important kind of high level notions to point out are that you know go golf courses are and golf course managers in this research community are paying attention to this from a, from a resource use standpoint, right? We almost have to we almost have to deconstruct climate change a little bit and think on a on a practical level, you know, what are these what are these changes going to mean for for a golf course superintendent? And and really, when you when you when you look at like the extreme weather events, right? We can we can look at things like like stormwater retention and say, okay, that's something that a, that a golf course could really help us with. Mm -hmm. um, but we also can look at well, it's getting warmer, um, it's going to be drier at certain times, and so it's going to be really important to continue to understand and improve the way that we manage golf courses and and, and use less water and, and set them up so that they're very persistent and that it, it just it just takes less that we can manage more efficiently in any way that we can and 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 so i think i think that's one angle the, the other angle is the very you know real opportunity of using renewable energies and and paying paying attention to how much energy is being used on a golf course and there was an environmental profile series done over a, comparing a basically a decade time frame for for a number of different resources but one was energy use and and we did see some declines in energy use over this 10 year period from people using renewable energies um, and also changing, you know, the way that they manage energy and, and developing just kind of like an energy management plan and being more thoughtful um, about the way that they that they use energy. And then the, the last kind of angle would be, I guess, more ecosystem service type considerations. 
I mentioned earlier that golf courses sequester carbon dioxide, right? Which is, if you if you follow, you know, the climate change consideration or, or discussions, you know, a lot of the concern are, are emissions and increasing concentrations of, of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the environment. And and so plants plants naturally help with that, right? Where they they sequester that carbon dioxide and especially grasses in the soil. And so and so that's important. Uh, but then we can also reduce other emissions by by again I mentioned using renewable energies, maybe using maybe we can get to a point where we have electric fleets of mowers and things like that on, on golf courses where we're using, you know, fewer fossil fuels and also applying, you know, just being really efficient with fertilizers and pesticides also has indirect consequences for, for somebody who's very climate conscious because, you know, it takes energy to produce those fertilizers. It takes energy to produce those pesticides. And so the less you use, the more efficient you are with them, the lesser need and the lesser produced. And so it's the life cycle analysis that's really complex and, and hard to completely explain, but but it's important to consider. And And there's also specific management strategies and, and considerations where so nitrous oxide is another you know really harmful greenhouse gas and and it it can volatilize from from nitrogenous fertilizers that are applied hmm. and so selecting uh applying a small rate making sure it's watered in using slow release sources that that aren't prone to to that type of loss you know all of these are things that can be done to you know reduce the emissions uh from from a golf course and, and reduce the overall footprint and you know, I guess one last thing is we know that, you know, pumping irrigation water actually takes a lot of electricity and some research is showing that that's a big part of the the energy um, use on a golf course. And so just, you know, goes to show you, I guess, another another benefit of, of drought tolerance and using less water is that, you know, we'll also use less energy in the end. Yeah. Interesting. You know, something that I'm hearing in your answer is, is not just here, here's how golf courses might react to uh the changing climate but here's how they might help <laughs> how golf courses might be part of the overall social response to these changing conditions i think it's i think it's really just you know to underline the proactive approach to cuz i like you know you said there there's this reaction to climate change and there's and i mean people are really concerned about this but you know, this is something that, that we've been thinking about for many years. We just haven't called it climate change. We've called it, you know, sustainable management and, and, and being environmentally responsible. And so I think all of all of that work uh, definitely funnels and, and will continue to help in this arena. So uh, last thing I wanted to get into is, you know, we, we've been talking about some of the potential benefits that golf courses can bring to their communities and to their local ecosystems, uh, as well as some of the things that golf course managers themselves might be able to do better, you know, uh, increased understandings based on the science that have helped us take care of golf courses in a more sustainable way. I, I wanted to touch, though, on the role of, of the golfer here and golfers' attitudes toward their playing surfaces and toward their golf courses in general, what kinds of shifts in attitudes do you think would be helpful uh, for golfers toward their golf courses to allow golf course maintenance people, golf course managers to present golf courses in as environmentally responsible a way as possible, right? Because a lot of what superintendents do is responding to golfer desires. And sometimes those golfer desires 
you know, force superintendents to do things that they don't want to do necessarily. Sure. And, and and so what can golfers do to kind of adjust their perception of golf courses to help with these issues that we've been talking about? It's a good question. And again, another really complex one, but I'll, <laughs> I'll give it my best shot here. I think that, I think that having a little higher pain threshold for uh, imperfect conditions, you know, would, mm-hmm. would help. I mean, we can, you can see areas where tolerating a few more weeds or tolerating drought, uh, droughty conditions and, and just letting the golf course be what it's, what, what the environment is providing at that time. Um, especially in areas like, you know, maybe we would continue to manage a, a putting green at a high level, but, but maybe other areas w- would, would be let go a little bit. Right. Um, and so I think, I think that type of acknowledgement and consideration is helpful and, and it follows through to naturalized areas as well. You know, we hear a lot that um, some of the, some of the challenges with establishing naturalized areas is they, it's not an overnight establishment. Um, it takes a couple years to get one of these, how it's supposed to look and it takes buy-in from, from clientele. And, and so you have to, you have to be patient. And so, so I think I think just raising awareness about that would be helpful, mm-hmm. and and by and large, when I you know I, I've established some of these way stations on golf courses and or this habitat, right? And and when you're out there doing it, people always come over and ask you what you're doing, and and once you explain it, they think it's cool and they're interested and very supportive. And so I think you know to flip it a little bit, I think I think we also as as a golf management community that's really what we need to do is try to help raise awareness about these exact que- this exact question that you're asking and saying, you know, explaining what we want and what we would prefer from our perspective to, to tolerate less than perfect conditions if it's really dry um, or to tolerate, you know, g- give us a chance while this naturalized area is establishing. I think, I think things like that are, are really helpful. And, and we could go all day on that at, to some extent where, you know, sometimes, something like a fungicide is, is difficult to schedule because you, you don't want to risk any any damage at all to a golf course. But we've seen from research that some of these uh, application strategies where you, you withhold an application until you see the first signs of a disease and then you apply it, um, they're, they're called threshold-based strategies. And if you use those, one, you're, you're in most cases, your, your quality's fine. You, you know, you don't completely lose a putting green or anything, but you use less fungicide in a year. And, and then that has all the associated uh, benefits that we've talked about. And so I think just being aware and, and acknowledging that, that, you know, if there are, if there are days where something, you know, something has caught up to us, to the golf course managers, it's, it, it's not for lack of effort. It's, and it's probably that they're, it, they're just, just a razor thin line uh, to try to, to try to walk, to be very sustainable. And so I think maybe patience in a word <laughs> would be what would be most helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Patience. And I mean, it, it just seems like the, uh, the most sustainable version of a golf course. Now this changes from location to location, obviously, like it's a good point, but, but the, 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 the most environmentally tied in golf course will often look really different from what, uh, people tend to think of as a golf course. I think that's it, right, Garrett? I mean, you have to be aware of what your background landscape is. And I even said this earlier that to be on par with the background landscape is all a, is all a golf. That's the benchmark for a golf course in my view. And so if it's if it's desert, then then that's desert in the is the naturalized area. Um, and then you you're just as efficient as you can be in between those areas. 
Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Cole, and dealing with my uh, <laughs> incredibly intricate questions. I, I find this to be a fascinating subject. I, I think that uh, you're you're doing and helping do great work. So uh, thanks so much for talking to me about it. Oh, thanks for having me on, Garrett. I hope uh, I hope I was informative, <laughs> at least a little. <laughs> Cole Thompson is the Assistant Director of Green Section Research at the USGA. And if you'd like to go deeper on what we talked about, I'd recommend checking out the USGA Green Section record, which has a lot of interesting stuff. On a completely different note, two fried egg events have recently opened for registration. We have the Big Muddy at Davenport Country Club and the Jagger at Blue Mound Golf and Country Club. Two absolutely first-rate courses there. To find out more about these events, go to proshop.thefriedegg.com and click on the events tab at the top. Thanks for listening.